you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles 7, verses 12 through 22. This is the inerrant word of God that was intended for our edification. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the earth or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away, forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted... Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. Amen. Father God, we come to your word. We bow our hearts and submit to your word. We desire, O God, that we would be transformed by your word. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach and enable uh, us, each one, Father, to not only be hearers, but doers of that word. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In the olden days in Holland, uh, the Dutch people sought to reclaim land from the sea by building dikes. They were sort of like uh, dams in the river, but they were holding the sea back because land was at such a premium. And if they needed more land, they would just push the sea that much further back and then convert whatever land was reclaimed into farmland or housing or whatever. And it was a risky business because they uh, knew that if uh, there ever got a hole in the dike and it would burst forth, that it could wash away the entire uh, village. And so the villagers kept a constant watch on... Uh, the dams to look for any potential damage that may have uh, happened. They realized that a small hole could be a big hole and eventually (laughs) the whole dam would burst open. And when I was a kid, I remember reading about a a Dutch boy uh, who was walking along the dikes and he noticed a little hole in the uh, wall of the dike and he knew he probably shouldn't be running to call for help because with the high pressure of the water, just a little 
bit of spray that was coming out could erode the wall fast enough that it would become a big enough hole, it would be a major problem. And so he stuck his finger, at least so the story goes, stuck his finger into the dike, realizing if uh, he didn't do that, little, little holes can make big holes. But he also realized it didn't take much to stop that hole. All it took was a little boy's finger. And uh, today I want to liken that dam to the efforts of humanism over the past 150 years. They have been patiently reclaiming land that humanism has been uh, claiming back from what God, God's ocean before had taken over. And they've been pushing back the ocean out of the schools and out of the courts and uh, out of uh, politics and out of every arena of life that they can think of. And for many Christians, that has been a very discouraging thing. And what I want to encourage you to realize is that it's a, it's a risky business. It's a tough thing to keep dikes constantly in repair to keep that ocean out. Um, uh, there is uh, coming a day, I believe, that uh, the oceans of God's grace, of God's kingdom, are going to wipe out any dikes and any dams that humanism may erect. And uh, we can look forward to that, but uh, it is not Christianity, but it is humanism that is really threatened. And there are many humanists today that are running scared, and they ought to be, because God has predestined that uh, His kingdom, the oceans of His kingdom, are going to fill the earth, right? And uh, so... By faith, we need to be doing what we can, not be always looking at the negative that many other people look at. To rephrase Christ's statement, um, where Jesus said, I will build my church, we can put it a little bit different language. Uh, I will build my church, and the dikes of humanism will never be able to hold back the oceans of God's kingdom that is advancing. There is no way that it will be able to hold that back. And I think a lot of times our focus is so much on what humanism is doing in society that we give up. We almost treat it as omnipotent, as, it's, as if it's impossible for uh, this humanism to be thwarted. And on this Memorial uh, Day weekend, uh, I think it would be very easy for us to uh, focus with sadness upon all of the lives that were lost in previous wars, people laying down their lives to fight for freedoms that now are being tossed out the window uh, without uh, any, any opposition, well, not very much opposition anyway. And we might be tempted to think that their lives were uh, laid down in vain. Uh, but I, I want us to be looking at history through the eyes of Scripture. God has used the wars of America to teach, I think, Christians many valuable lessons, including some of the mistakes that we have made. Uh, the weaknesses that are in even our, our, our political documents. And uh, I, I think we can learn from it. But I, I have to say there is no way that the gates of Hades will be able to prevail against the onslaught of Christ's church. No way that they will be able to do so. And so I want to give a sermon that encourages each one of you to be that hole in the dike. I, I want you to be encouraged to to uh, 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 rise up and, and realize that God has been over the past many years in many different ways eroding this dam. He has been putting little holes, and there's little holes all over the place that have been established. And you can think of some of those holes. I'm going to give you just a few, a few examples. I think the largest hole that has been established in the dike of humanism in America is homeschooling. Um, 
And uh, I think uh, uh, the, the homeschoolers in this nation are really God's waters pouring through a hole at a very high velocity. Let me read you a little bit from Andrew Sandlin, and I want to encourage you that there really is nothing at this point that Satan can do to put his finger in this hole to stop the leakage. Andrew Sandlin said, No accurate figures of homeschoolers, most of whom are Christian, are available, but the number falls realistically in the low millions. The parents have taken the first step in Christian reconstruction, an assault against the messianic claims of a godless state to control the seed of its citizens. Their children are daily being instructed in an atmosphere of biblical authority, Christian virtue, and godly obedience and order. Their subjects are taught from a distinctly Christian perspective. Language is God's gift designed to enhance the communication of His truth. History is the sphere of God's sovereign dealings, including the Christian heritage of North America. Science is the scrutiny of God's creation. Math and logic are the exhibition of God's orderliness and so forth. These Christian children are largely immune to the enticements of godless secularism. And he goes on to point out that the next leaders for our culture are being raised up before our very eyes. And it's not just a small contingent, you know, that's trying in desperation to do suicide attacks against Satan's kingdom. It's an army that's being raised up, and it's multiplying very, very quickly. And it's an army that is used to making sacrifices. So homeschoolers have made some of the most tremendous sacrifices over the past three or four decades. Uh, They're used to making those. It's an army with patience and determination, an army that is not bought into the revisionist history that's being spouted or will be spouted tomorrow on Memorial Day uh, by uh, many people. It's an army with a sense of history, and it's an army with a sense of destiny. And like I said, the waters of God's ocean, I think, are pressing faster and faster through the dike of humanism. I think it's just a matter of time before those dikes burst open altogether. Uh, I don't think it's wishful thinking. We're going to be looking at some scriptures to, to show that that's not. A second hole in the dike has been the emergence of a vibrant Reformed faith in the last three decades. Uh, when I first became Reformed, I had a hard time finding other Reformed churches and publishing houses. And yet, uh, since the, the 60s and the 70s, it is incredible how fast the Reformed faith has been going. Now, some Reformed people are pietistic and retreatistic, but you know, there are so many Reformed people that share with Reconstructionists, and so many more Reconstructionists now than there were before, that share a full-orbed faith, seeing the Lordship of Christ over absolutely every area of life. And uh, the, uh, uh, the, the humanists in our nation, I think, are, are running fearful. All you have to do is a little search on the American Humanist Association and a few of the other godless organizations, and they write about, you know, the moral majority, and they say, nothing to worry about. And evangelical Christians, nothing to worry about. Several of these organizations have said the enemy of America, they mean the enemy of humanism, is Reconstructionism. They say that this is the enemy that is to be feared because these people take seriously the Bible's blueprints for society. They don't believe that they're going to change because they're God's word, and they've got an optimism concerning the future to expect great things from the Lord. And that's the third hole in the dike that I think is present is an optimistic eschatology. Even those who are not post-millennial, there are more and more who are beginning to see God's kingdom is advancing invincibly. It is advancing at the expense of Satan's kingdom. 
And uh, uh, I, I think we need to realize that dispensationalism is dying. It's been dying a slow death, but it's been dying slowly but surely. I'm not the only one who has abandoned dispensationalism. There are thousands and thousands every year that are bailing out and realizing that it's an insipid uh, 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 faith that does not take on culture. It cannot. In fact, there's people who want to take on culture, but they realize that their philosophical framework is inconsistent with that. And so there are many people who are embracing the old-fashioned, healthy eschatology of post-millennialism. And because of that, because they see that God's promises are bright concerning the future, they have a faith to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. And so... The reemergence of this kind of faith is an encouraging thing to me. It's this erosion that's happening in the, the culture so that uh, the waters of God's grace uh, can uh, flood through. Now, you can perhaps think of other holes in the dike, uh, some of the things in uh, creation science and uh, business and in other areas as well. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at this one verse, Second Chronicles 7, verse 14, and I want to look at some of the bare-bones essentials that have to be in place if uh, we are going to succeed as a church. If humanism is the dike that has been built to protect America from Christian influence, what is the hole in the dike that can bring forth a flood of cleansing and healing waters of grace? Well, I believe verse 14 gives the answer, and the first part of that answer is that God is going to do it through His people, through the church. I mean, Jesus did say, didn't He, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. When the gospel goes into a new city, goes into a new region, immediately God has established a hole in the dike of the humanism of that culture, and He expects that hole to start growing, right? He expects there to be more and more Christians in that area who begin to take uh, His Word and His blueprints uh, seriously. Now, we're going to be seeing that there are ways in which Satan can stick his finger into that dike and to make the church ineffective, and uh, uh, we'll be looking at those strategies. But all of the strategies are against the church. It's not politics that is key. I believe it is the church that is key, God's people who are key to the extension of His kingdom. God says here, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Have you ever considered the possibility that the judgments that have already been coming upon America are not just because of what the secular culture out there is doing, but because the church itself has failed to be salt and light in our communities? Uh, I, I firmly believe it's because of the church that we're in the kind of mess that we're in today. And uh, I believe it's the presence of the church that has averted calamity after calamity down through history. And uh, it's uh, the absence of the church that's allowed various cultures to die. He says, if my people will humble themselves. I think that's all that is necessary. Proverbs 11, verse 10 says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Saying the church can make an entire difference in, in, in a city. It's not just if the city prospers. It says, if the righteous prosper, then the city rejoices. Mark 13, verse 20, 
If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. The presence of the church in that verse averted total calamity, being totally wiped out. It was the church alone that made the difference, according to Christ. Remember the story of Abraham uh, interceding on behalf of of, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? God had threatened to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and hear what he says. Here's what Abraham says. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? And I think he was maybe assuming Lot had gone into that city. He was engaging in evangelism. Maybe by now, that pagan city, there's 50 people who have come to Christ. And so he was assuming that. And here's the Lord's response. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Okay? So the church, the presence of the church there would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah from judgment. It was for their sake, it wasn't for the city's sake, that judgment would be averted. Now, Abraham keeps lowering the figure because he has his doubts about what kind of influence that Lot has been able to bring. And finally, Abraham says, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. Now, in Jewish thought, the number 10 was the minimum number to form a synagogue. Whether that was in his mind or not, who knows. But there was no church in Sodom. Lot was the only believer, and he had grossly compromised his life. And as a result, there was no hole. The hole was plugged. There was no water leaking in the dike of humanism in that area. And Scripture uses this analogy many times. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. This is a passage where God says that, that in Isaiah's day, Israel had become as corrupt as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now think about that. Israel had become as corrupt as Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet God did not destroy that nation. I think there's a very interesting passage here. Uh, I, I, I forget who started the statement, but I keep hearing it all over the place that if God does not destroy America, he'd have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't think that's correct. I don't think that's correct at all because uh, here is a passage where God himself, by inspiration, says that this is a nation that has become so corrupt that he's likening it to Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet he says through Isaiah's ministry, he's going to bring revival, he's going to bring uh, reformation there. Okay, let me turn here quick. Isaiah chapter 1, and um, let's see, let's begin at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's saying these leaders were totally corrupt. They were in a state where God looked at them in the same way. He looked at Sodom and Gomorrah. They were filthy in his sight. He wanted to do away with them. And the church there had become apostate at that time as well. And they were having no positive impact either. But look at the verse before, verse 9. He says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. We're not talking about a huge church here. He says, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. It was the remnant within the nation that kept them from being totally destroyed. 
And in our text, in 2 Chronicles, uh, God says that if the church itself, the true church, the remnant church, will take its proper role, God will bring healing to the entire nation. It's not the whole nation that we have to wait for uh, repentance. Sometimes God does that. He did it with Nineveh. He did it in other situations. But he says, look, if even the church will repent, I will bring healing to this nation. We ought not to be discouraged about the things that are going out there. The world's acting like the world. We should expect the world to act that way. Where we should be discouraged is when the church of Jesus Christ itself is failing to honor his laws. Where we are an unholy people, where we fail to be salt and light. That's where we ought to be discouraged. And I think that's where the focus of our work uh, needs to be, is reformation of the church of Jesus Christ. It's in as bad of need for reformation today as it was back at the time of Luther and Calvin. It's in desperate need of reformation. And this means that the church must be the church in its society. And each one of you plays a role in this church being the church. See, the church is not just when we gather here. Church is the people. It's the people at work. It's the people at school. It's wherever you are. That is the church. And you play a key role in the church being the church in this city. In each of the crisis junctures in America's history, it was revival in the church that made the definitive turnaround of uh, the nation. And you study some of those. You see history repeating itself. The first great awakening, the second great awakening. Uh, the revival of 1857, the revival of 1904. Now, here's points two and following. If the church is that hole in the dike of humanism, there are four ways that Satan can, as it were, stick his finger into the dike and to keep that hole from getting any larger. Four items are pride, prayerlessness, self-centeredness, and sin. So it's not just any church that God says will be used by him for a mighty outpouring upon a nation. It is first and foremost a humble church. So he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, it is not until the church humbles itself before the Lord that the Lord unleashes his power when he pours forth his spirit. Why don't you turn with me to James chapter 4, and I think this is a key uh, passage in explaining why God wiped out the church in Africa. There was a vibrant church there at one time, but because of their failure to repent of their pride and of their self-sufficiency, they were wiped out. In fact, God wiped out the church in Turkey. If you ever wonder why he did that, he prophesies about it in Revelation 2 through 3, his letters to the churches of Asia Minor, and he says, look, if you don't repent of your sins, and if you don't repent of your pride, and if you don't repent of your self-sufficiency, I'm going to uproot you and take you out. And God, in fact, did do exactly that. But uh, take a look at uh, James chapter 4, and uh, let's begin at verse 6. James 4 and verse 6. But he gives more grace, and that's what we need, isn't it? We need more grace. We need God's grace poured out in abundance in our own lives because we sense our weakness. We need more grace poured out in our nation. But notice the context. He says, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Wherever there is pride in the church, God resists that church and makes that church utterly ineffective. Utterly ineffective. 
To have God resisting the proud means that a proud church in a nation is going to have utterly no value to that nation. It's not going to, to be any whole. It's plugged with pride, and it's unable. And so he goes on. He says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But it's only in the context of submitting to God, right? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so if we want to be a church that is effective in the city of Omaha, we need to be a church that is humbling ourselves before the Lord in, in, in every area. Humility involves admitting our wrong and confessing our sins one to another. It's being real, not trying to put up a facade that we hide ourselves, the real us, from others. And so it's an admission of guilt. It gives others credit. Where credit is due without always feeling like we have to take the credit for things. Uh, it is um, willing to die to our own reputa reputation. Uh, the humble are quick to seek forgiveness if they've been wrong, and uh, they take the initiative to pursue others if the others are wrong. But they don't want there to be uh, a breakdown, and they're willing to forgive. They recognize their need of God. Now, humility <clears throat> is connected to the next points. I don't think it's possible without the next points. The third point, next dimension that needs to be restored to the church is prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Now, we all know the importance of prayer, and we've read it in the Scripture many times. So why is it so difficult for us to pray? Why do we continue to struggle with it? Well, I think there may be a number of different reasons, but one reason is that any time that there is something that you know is going to make you and going to make the church effective in advancing God's kingdom, Satan's going to be right there doing everything he can to plug that up. He doesn't want that hole in the dike. He hates those who pray. Actually, our flesh uh, hates prayer because prayer is really an aspect of our humility. It's saying, Lord, we're dependent upon you, not just for this and that. When we, when we are self-sufficient, we tend to be a prayerless people. But when we recognize we need the Lord desperately, there is a compulsion to prayer. And so the two points really are connected together. Here's what E.M. Bounds says. He says, praying is humbling work. It abases the intellect and pride, crucifies vainglory, and signs our spiritual bankruptcy. And all of these are hard for flesh and blood to bear. Satan hates a praying church, and there has been no revival, no reformation in the history of the, of the world that we have any records of that did not begin with prayer. Prayer was at the foundation of it all. Andrew Murray, in his book, The Ministry of Intercession, said, Surely of all the gifts of the early church for which we should long, there is none more needed than the gift of prayer. When Peter was kept in prison... Prayer was made without ceasing of the church. Peter was delivered. Stone walls and double chains, soldiers and keepers and the iron gate all gave way before the power of prayer from heaven. That prayer brought down the rescue. The whole power of the Roman Empire, as represented by Herod, was impotent in the presence and power of the church of the Holy Spirit yielded in prayer. 
And there are so many scriptures that connect this unleashing of the Lord's blessings together with prayer. You have not because you ask not, the scriptures say. Both uh, great awakenings began with prayer. Now, prior to 1935, the dikes of humanism had been erected and they had pushed Christianity out of the public sector. They had pushed it out of many different areas. You read back there. I mean, we, we tend to think of those times as Christian times in our nation. There were Christian times, but there were really pagan times in America as well. And pornography was rife, murder, uh, even bestiality was sp- spreading. I mean, there was a lot of iniquity that was going on. And in 1744, a group of ministers in Scotland who was very distressed about the state of affairs in Scotland as well as in the Americas, they issued a proclamation and saying, let's commit ourselves to uh, praying, praying with people from other denominations, but let's commit ourselves to having groups of prayer everywhere on a regular basis. And uh, here was part of their letter that we be given to united, extraordinary supplications to the God of all grace, earnestly praying to Him that He would appear in His glory by an abundant effusion of His Holy Spirit. Effusion means pouring out of His Holy Spirit to revive true religion in all parts of Christendom and fill the whole earth with His glory. Well, they sent that out. Jonathan Edwards picked it up, and he said, Yes, I agree. This is scriptural. We need to have these praying societies And uh, shortly thereafter, the Lord did pour forth not only revival, but enormous social transformation. And so the dikes of humanism were left in absolute splinters after that time. It was a profound change. And I think it was actually essential for preparation for the war for independence 20 years later. Now, subsequent to that, Satan was busy rebuilding the dikes of humanism trying to push things back. And uh, uh, one author said of the period prior to the Second Great Awakening, he says, it seems hard to believe now, but in the decades immediately following the winning of our independence, the fledgling United States of America went into one of the most serious moral decays, decays in the entire history of our country. Now, that's saying a lot because he's writing from our perspective. He was saying it was a lot worse back then than it is right now. Uh, It was one of the most serious moral decays, he says, in the entire history of our country. There was something called the filthy speech movement. You can imagine what that was about. Drunkenness was so common that out of a population of 5 million, there were some 300,000 confirmed drunkards. That's 6%. That's that's huge. So he says... um, Out of a population of 5 million, there were some 300,000 confirmed drunkards, 15,000 of which were dying each year of alcoholism. Perhaps even more shocking was what was happening at our colleges, such as Yale, Williams, Harvard, Dartmouth, and uh, Princeton. Bibles were burned. Students rioted. Communion services were mocked. There were so few Christians at the colleges that they met in secret. As for the church buildings, they were deserted. Every denomination was rapidly disintegrating. Voltaire, the famous French deist philosopher, declared triumphantly, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. But God stirred up the hearts of 23 New England ministers to, again, call for prayer meetings throughout the land. And you know the history that God did bring revival. He brought it to the... The colleges, Yale was just transformed. It was turned upside down as a result 
of the revival that the Lord brought. And you could see the changes in culture as well. You know, uh, Psalm 72, and there's many other passages, prophesy of a time in history, world history, when there will be no dikes of humanism. No dams of humanism holding back the, the, the waters of God's grace. In fact, in Isaiah and in Micah, it uses the analogy of the ocean. It says that the knowledge, uh, uh, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the ocean beds. That's encouraging. God says that's going to happen in history where there will no longer be any need to erode those gates. But, but uh, if there are to be holes in the dikes of this city, We've got to be united in prayer. And if there is to be an effectiveness of our church and uh, a resistance to the things that make us ineffective, we've got to have prayer meetings. And I hope it's not just prayer meetings in my home, but that we have them, we have them in the towns around about. We have multiple prayer meetings beseeching the Lord. Without prayer, we cannot have success in this congregation. The next prerequisite is that we be a God-centered church, and that can be seen in the words, and seek my face, and seek my face. It's not enough to pray. God calls for a certain kind of prayer, and it's a prayer that's not just satisfied with receiving things from God. It is seeking God's very presence. It is seeking the Lord God. Uh, for many, uh, prayer is simply uh, you know, submitting a grocery list to the Lord and saying, see you later. And I have to confess that many times my prayers take on that character. And God, praise the Lord, in his mercies he answers prayers like that and he graciously blesses us. But the Lord says he wants us not just to be seeking his gifts, he wants us to be seeking the giver of those gifts, right? He wants there to be a relationship. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 29, God tells his people, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When we seek God with all of our heart, we don't just find answers to prayer. We find God in our prayers. We find him anointing our prayers. We find ourselves praying in the Spirit. We find ourselves encouraged by the Spirit. We find his presence uh, with us. Uh, Brother Lawrence used to say, prayer is nothing else than a sense of God's presence. Horace Bushnell uh, was a mighty man of uh, prayer, and a friend of his wrote about what it was like to be in the same room when he was praying. He said, when Horace Bushnell buried his face in his hands and prayed, I was afraid to stretch out my hand in the darkness, lest I should touch God. And I would say, if we have not found God in our prayer life, Uh, We have not yet hit the depths of prayer. We have not gotten to the heart of what prayer is about. Count Zinzendorf sought the giver rather than the gifts. He says, I have one passion. It is he, he alone. And so let me read you several scriptures that indicate God is not content with just seeking things from him. He wants us to be seeking him. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 11. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, if you seek him, he will be found by you. 2 Chronicles 12, 14, but he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. 2 Chronicles 15, 2, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. 
Second Chronicles 19, verse 3, Good things are found in you, in that you have prepared your heart to seek God. Psalm 34, verse 10, The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God, early will I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. So it's not just seeking things from God, it's saying, Lord, I desire you. I don't want dry formality in my relationship. I want you. I want to know the power of your resurrection in my life. I want you. I know that I have, when I have found God <clears throat> in my prayer life, it has transformed my prayer life. Uh, Job, in the midst of his depression, said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. He wanted to enter into the, the relationship that he was used to having. In fact, uh, one of the verses in verse 29 talked about the, uh, the, the companionship of God was over his tent. Uh, he was friends with God. <clears throat> and there have been times uh, that uh, the, the, and the fact it was the Puritans who introduced me to some of this, the depth of their relationship with God, not just outward but their inward relationship to, to, to God was just profound. John Owen, you'd just think he was an egghead, you know, somebody that uh, couldn't relate at all like that. But no, he was passionate about that. And there have been times in my prayer life where I have suddenly sensed the presence of the Lord so profoundly and manifestation of his, his joy or his love or his comfort that I was overwhelmed. I couldn't even pray. All I could do was just silently adore and worship him. The first time it happened, I actually was so uncomfortable with it. I was reading in the book of Leviticus, having devotions on my knees and meditating upon the incredible holiness of God that was shown in the cleanness, all of the cleansing rituals and how impure we are to come before him. And suddenly I had... Uh, a, a, a sense of God's holiness so strong in fear, I backed out of the room because I wasn't used to being in the presence of God like those Israelites uh, who said, Moses, you go. We don't dare go and see God's glory or like the, the priests who were in the temple when the glory cloud came down. They, they fled because they could not stand before God's presence. Uh, I wasn't able to be in front of God's presence, but God says, I want you to get used to it. I want you to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. I want you to enter into the closeness of communion and communion with me. And so it's not just a formal prayer, not just any kind of prayer. It's a prayer that is centered in God, related to God. Does that make sense? Okay, the last prerequisite is a holy church, a church that is willing to cast aside its sins, a, a church that's willing to study God's blueprints, knows how to apply God's blueprints. We're going to be useless if we don't know how to apply God's blueprints to the areas of life that God has called us to. And so he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so I would say, if we want America to respect God's law, if we want Omaha to respect God's law, then we as a church need to respect God's law. We need to encourage the other churches. We need to be evangelists for law. We need to be evangelists for God's word and encourage these churches apart from holiness, which is defined by God's law, not by how we feel, 
we are not going to make an impact upon Omaha. Now, don't get me wrong. God is not saying that the church must become worthy of his blessings. Far from it. Uh, all we are in ourselves is um, you know, a hole in the wall. We're a big fat zero, right? Uh, we, we have nothing. It's when we recognize our weakness that his strength is made known. And I think our problem is that Satan has filled us with pride and sin and so many different things that the holes are plugged. Okay, there's no flow, as it were, of the, the waters of God's kingdom through us. We're too big. We're too full of ourselves for God to use. And really, in, the, in this verse, there's a progression from emptiness to holiness. Okay, point, um, when, we, when we humble ourselves by putting away our pride, this point two, by praying to God as a needy people, that's point three, by being wrapped up in God, point four, and by putting away our sinfulness, point five, we discover afresh that even though we are no match for the Canaanites, God is. Right? We're, we're simply a whole. And when our whole is filled with pride and sin and rubbish, God's waters do not flow. But when we become a big fat zero, and we're no longer full of ourselves and full of materialism and self-seeking, God fills us. His waters flow through us. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Okay? Nothing. When we're filled of ourselves, we can do nothing, nothing that's of significance eternally. But Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, why is the church so depressed over the state of affairs in America? Why are we convinced of failure? Why are there so many books pouring off the shelves convincing us why we can't do it? <laughs> why uh, God, God's got to come back and rapture us out so soon? Why is there so much uh, pessimism? I think it's because we're so full of ourselves, we cannot see that God's victory is not dependent on our being strong. It's the exact opposite. It's on our being weak. It's on our being zeros. It's on our being holes in the wall. When we see ourselves as nothing, that's when God's grace is made, made, made strong. It's not the holes in the wall that are so strong. It's the power of the ocean flowing through it that is so strong. And so we need to submit ourselves to God's ways of handling things. And when we become willing to be a humble hole in the wall, He will hear, He will forgive, He will heal our land. And so it's my prayer that God would do a humbling work in each one of our lives so that there would be a bursting forth of the dam of humanism. Is it possible? I think it is possible. There have been many times in the past when this has happened. Uh, maybe getting to the place where there are holes takes a long time. You know, there's a gradualism in the growth of God's kingdom uh, in that sense. But you look at the, the book of Esther. There was a gradualism up to a point, and then there was a sudden change around. And even at the end of the book of Esther, many people becoming Jews. You look at Nineveh. Uh, Jonah's preaching to Nineveh. Overnight, God burst forth the dam in, 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 in Nineveh's uh, life And Christ says in the Gospels that the conversion of Nineveh was a genuine conversion. It was a profound conversion. Um, you can think of Solomon's peace in one generation. You can think of the revivals under Jehoshaphat and Asa and Hezekiah. And you can think down through church history. We gave a, a faith spot uh, some weeks ago on Armenia. That was a nation converted in 301 A.D., now, there was gradualism up to that. Christians were a persecuted minority. They just didn't seem to be getting anywhere. 
But then God turned things around. There were enough holes in the dike of humanism there that there was a bursting forth of the dam. And within 20 years, the entire nation and its social institutions were thoroughly uh, changed by the word of God. They were Christianized. And you think of how long it took for Rome to come to the place where it came to a crash. But it became a Christian nation as well. God can change things around very quickly. And there's uh, uh, scriptures that prophesy that Israel will be converted in one day and a nation will be born in one day. And uh, it talks also about <clears throat> Egypt and uh, Assyria, which is around the region of Iraq, becoming Christian and uh, being uh, totally submitted to the Lord. And actually, already, there's holes in those dikes. Why is it that uh, the ultra-Orthodox or ultra-conservative, what is the party in Israel, why is it that they have been trying to make Christianity illegal and they've been doing so much persecution? It's because so many Jews are coming to Christ in Israel. Why is Egypt persecuting Christians so much? It's because the Muslims are getting fed up with so many Muslims getting converted to Christ. They feel we've got to do something about this. Did you realize that there are so many Christians in Iraq right now that um, the uh, Saddam Hussein, most of his bodyguards are Christians. Now, he doesn't like Christians, but he trusts them. <laughs> and I think that's what we need to be. We need to be Christians out there, indispensable in business, indispensable in science, indispensable in anything that we put our hands to, so that, yeah, even if they don't like us, they have to have us. Even though we're holes in their wall, they have to have us because they can't get along without us. But anyway, all of those soldiers that you saw during that Gulf War that were, you know, surrendering at the end and saying, yeah, we want to be captured, quick, capture us, you know. Those were Christians that he had just put up there as cannon fodder. And I think God's got such a great sense of humor. Uh, Saudi Arabia tried to force America not to allow any Bibles to be brought in by the soldiers. And here are streams of Bibles coming with these uh, captured soldiers. And there were, there were guards who came to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And these guards then smuggled these Bibles out. Some of their relatives became saved. And there are now many holes in the dike. And it's a huge dike in Saudi Arabia. But there are holes that are already developing. See, God can use our weakness. We started with a story of our weakness, didn't we? And how God can use it. God can use it. In fact, he delights to use our weakness. When we come to the place where we say, Lord, I am nothing. I make so many failures, but Lord, I put my failures on the altar for you. I put myself as weak as I am. I am available, Father, to speak your word into situations. It is in those situations that the Lord says, ah, finally, I've come to a place where I've got some people who are not going to take the glory to themselves when I do something awesome. These are people I'm ready to use. And God begins to pour forth the flood, the high-pressured flood of his ocean waters through our lives. And, uh, and uh, he, he makes profound social change. Money that they get. Uh, think of, the, 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 think of the, the, the protection that they get from the government. But, you know, it's the very areas where they get their support that are going to be their downfall because they have very few supporters. They're very rich and wealthy. But if those guys get converted and if the government gets changed around instantly, overnight, 95% of the funds for Planned Parenthood could be dried up. 
And that's the way it is with a lot of the humanistic programs because they're power religion related. They're dependent upon the big money and the big government. And, and we're not. We're little holes in the dike. And I tell you, when things bust forward, God could change things overnight in a very profound way. And so my exhortation to you this morning is not to worry about whether the ocean is strong enough to take on the dikes. My exhortation to you is to begin to take on the painful but easy job of being a big fat zero, of being a hole in the wall, being available for God to pour his grace through you. Amen. Father God, we come to you this morning recognizing our utter, utter unworthiness, why you would even bother to use us as servants to advance your kingdom. Uh, is just beyond our imagination, Lord. You could in an instant convert everybody that needs to be converted, sanctify everybody that needs to be sanctified, and spread missions to the far reaches of this globe, and yet you have chosen to use weak people like us. Praise be to your name, Father. Help us not to have the attitude, Lord, that we will only speak uh, if we are people who have been trained in seminary. We've been trained to, to speak. Help us, Lord, to realize that like the little maid <clears throat> that uh, uh, simply said, oh, that my master uh, could uh, see the prophet in Israel and he came to a saving knowledge of you through that little maid's testimony. May we be like that maid, Lord, just willing to be used, willing to groan our O's before the world, willing to express our heart before others and to not be ashamed of our identification with you and with your word. Lord, forgive us for those times where we have been ashamed to bring your word to bear in our culture. And I pray that you would help us with all of our heart and all of our soul to pursue after you. We love you, Lord. And yet we recognize how thin our love is. And we want to grow in our love to you. We want the pouring out of your Holy Spirit in our lives to transform us. Make us a people, O oh God. Make us a church in, into which Satan's finger could not fit, that he could not stop the flow of your Holy Spirit through us. We make ourselves available, O Lord. We lay ourselves on the altar of your service, and we pray that you would use us. Cause your church to grow, we pay. In Christ's name, amen.